It is good to be with you this evening. I look forward to continuing our journey through this section of Ephesians as we explore what it means to relent, what it means to give up our sins for the Lord, and what it means to give up ourselves to the Lord. Reminded you each week that in this series, we're tracing out some themes that we found early in Ephesians 1, especially the theme of God the Father electing us or choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we're focusing on the purpose of that. We don't want to get hung up on the first part of election, but we want to see the purpose for which God elected or chose us. And it's very clearly stated that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we are learning how to live as God's chosen people and how to become holy and blameless before the face of God. Put another way, we are learning how to live in the family of God as the children of God. We're learning how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body. And we're learning to put off the old man and to put on the new man. We're learning to put off Adam and put on Christ. That's the language that we've been using. And the thing that we're trying to do is live consistently with the new identity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you recall from last week, we learned that we must use our mouth, our hands, and our heart for the glory of God according to the grace of God. But this week, if you've glanced ahead and you've seen Ephesians 5, you'll know that we're going to be talking about the way we use different body parts, our private parts, if you will, for ways that glorify God according to the grace of God. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 7. And the word of God reads, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not associate with them. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, may be seated. I want you to know as we enter into this scripture this evening that These are sensitive and delicate matters. I was thinking about something I read in a book on marriage many years ago where it talks about 
conversation between husbands and wives. And sometimes in that conversation, things happen that no one intended. And the example that was used is that sometimes a husband might say something to his wife. And in his mind, he is simply casting a small pebble in her direction. But by the time that small pebble leaves his mouth or hand and heads her way and she sees it coming, it appears to be a large boulder that is about to crush her. I'm very aware in reading a passage like this and thinking through the issues involved that a sermon that I might intend to be a small stone just to get your attention could land on you like a crushing boulder. And I want to assure you that it is not my intent to crush anyone tonight. And so I want to tell you up front that whatever happens in the next few minutes, just bear with me and know that by the end of all of this, I'm going to be pointing you to Christ. And so I'm not casting any stones your direction at all. I want to be pointing you to Jesus Christ. I was able to spend some time with an older man from our presbytery and uh, the men who've been examined to serve as elders in our congregation spent some time with him yesterday as well. And issues like the one that we just read about in Ephesians 5 have come up many times in our conversations. And I heard him say on two or three occasions this thing that I wanted him to share with our men as well. But it has to do with sexual sins and sexual struggles And he says this, he said this to all of us, a man who never struggles with sexual sin, a man who says he never struggles with sexual sin will lie about other things as well. And it's not just men, is it? It's all of us because we live in a world that has been entirely and utterly sexualized and it's everywhere. We can't escape it. It's uh, we're bombarded on a daily basis with a wide range of things. And yet we're called here in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God. We're called to live in a very distinct kind of way. And we feel the pressure of the world from outside of us. We also have the pressure of our own desires inside of us. And then God's word comes and says, here is a way that God, our father, expects us to live. Think about that very first phrase in Ephesians 5 verse 1. We could spend the rest of the evening on this one phrase. I won't do that, but think about the weight of the command that's given to us here. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. In my more sanctified moments, I say, yes, that's right. Let's do that. But in my weaker moments, I want to say, are you kidding me? Be imitators of God. This is mission impossible. You've set us up for failure, Paul. Be imitators of God. And then he adds, as dearly loved children. Now, we spent some time not long ago exploring who God is. We saw that God is one essence and three persons. The triune God. So when Paul says be imitators of God, what does he mean? Does he mean be imitators of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit? Do we rotate between each person and trying to imitate them? What in the world is Paul getting at? Well, I think Paul is narrowing this down to be imitators of God, the father. And the reason I say that and I take this view is because he describes us as Beloved children of the Father. So I think he's establishing here a familial relationship between Father and children. 
He's fleshing out the father and child relationship that has been at work in Ephesians from the beginning. Remember when he said the father is the one who predestined us. And then he tells us why he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. As children of love adopted into the family of God, we are expected to become imitators of God the Father. Now, they won't happen from one day to the next or one moment to the next, but it's a lifelong pursuit of learning to imitate your father, to do what he does, to copycat or to mimic him. There's no way we could copycat or mimic him in everything because not everything he does is something that we could ever imitate. But there are some things we can do, and one of those things is love. We can learn to love. And what I want us to do as we explore this text, is basically set up the contrast between love and lust. Between love and lust. One of my favorite rock and roll bands has a song called So Cruel. And in that song by U2, there's a line that has always gripped me and it's, it's, uh, it's gripped my imagination and my heart. But the line says of someone that they are That they are being trampled between the horses of love and lust. And I imagine that many of us in this room have felt trampled in that very place at one time or another. We feel the struggle between love and lust. We confuse the two and we were not always able to distinguish between them. But we're called here to imitate our father who loves us and adopted us into his family. And we're called to imitate his love towards one another and towards others. This is what Paul is getting at. Jesus is the one who will show us what that love looks like. And he will actually show us the best way to to imitate the Father's love. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But what I'm trying to establish for you now is that the Father has adopted us into his family because he loves us. He's done this in love. He's done it out of his grace and for his glory. And so if you're in Christ, you're in the family. This is not about showing you how to work your way into the family or to convince the father that you belong here because you're good enough to be here. This is about the fact that you've been adopted into the family. Christ has laid down his life for you. The spirit has gathered you, sealed you, brought you into the family of God. You bear God's name on your life. You have the seal of the spirit in your life and you are secure in your place in the father's house. And what Paul is getting at is saying, look, now that you are here, now that you're in the father's house, You need to think about what the father wants you to do and how to live in his house. What are the expectations? The expectations are these that you have come into the father's house and he gives us a set of household rules to live by. I know we don't like the word rule very much. It's like a four letter word in the Christian church, but it's an it's an important rule, uh, an important word because it establishes standards for us by which we can live. So the father sets rules for his family and we are learning the rules and learning how to abide by the rules. We're learning what happens when we break the rules. We're learning what happens when we keep the rules. We're learning that the father grants us the grace to struggle and to grow in our 
keeping of the rules. He forgives us when we break them. So this is a family. The family of God is a family that that is established in the love of God. There's an atmosphere of love in this family. And I, I know that some of you have had hard time with the church or with congregations or churches um, that do things in the name of God. And you've struggled because they haven't always acted in love. I get that. But I'm saying in general, the, the, the thing the scriptures tell us is that this is what the father is trying to do is establish a family on the basis of love where you have safety and security Okay, so when you as we saw last week, when you mess up, when you mess up, you don't say I messed up. My father is going to kill me. That's not the response we have in the family of God. When you mess up now because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you say I messed up. I need to call my father. I need to call my father. Why? Because daddy's going to pay for your crash car. That's why. That's what he does. He loves you that much. Okay, so it's not like you messed up and now he says you're out of the family. He's like, oh, you messed up. Well, we need to fix that. We need to work on that. Okay, and he works with you and in you to help uh, fix those things. Okay, so there are two things here. Positively, our father requires us to walk in love. That's what is stated. He requires us to walk in love. And then negatively, our father forbids us to walk in lust. Okay, walk in love. Don't walk in lust. Let's talk about lust first. Lust is more than desire and it's more than sexual desire, but it is not less than either of those. Especially in this context. Paul mentioned in writing this uh, he talks about lust in three different ways. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And when I'm talking, I'm going to unpack those a little bit more in just a moment. But all of those have to do with some kind of expression of sexuality. And we're talking about how to use our bodies for the glory of God. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, for those of you who are taking notes, you can explain that to your children at home if you need to. But I'm trying to be discreet here. In his book, Steering Through Chaos, Os Guinness explains this about lust. He says, lust is an idolizing of sex in the sense of an unethical and unrestrained expression of sexual impulse. Okay, it's an idolization, an idolizing of sex, making more of it than God does, making more of it than uh, than we need to. We make it bigger in our bodies, bigger in our hearts and minds than we need to. And when that happens, now we've we've gone away from love into self-interest. OK. Lust can be expressed in many different ways. It can be expressed in your heart when when you admire someone or when you desire someone or something that you are not rightly permitted to have. So you're crossing boundaries and you're going beyond limits. OK. So lust can occur, can manifest in your heart, be expressed in your heart when you admire something or desire someone that you are not rightly permitted to have. Lust can also be expressed. Lust can also be expressed in your body when you want to be the one who is admired or desired by others in unlawful and wrong ways. 
In other words, when you make yourself an object for others to observe and desire and admire, in that point, there's a different lust is working in you in a different way and it generates lust in others. It can also be expressed by others when they are trying to stir up your passions and your pleasures. We heard this in the reading before the sermon from Proverbs 6, where a father and a mother warn their sons about the, uh, about the loose women in their town, about women that can bring them down. Now, this can happen with, we would warn our daughters too about uh, wild and crazy men. But the point is, there are people out there who try to get into your life and try to ruin you by taking advantage of you, taking advantage of what are good desires, but encouraging you to use those good desires in wrong ways. And so as I mentioned earlier, it's true as we glance around that we live in a lustful, sex-obsessed culture. It is everywhere, and that is not an overstatement. It's probably an understatement. It is everywhere. It comes out in advertising. It comes out in our music. It comes out in social media platforms. It comes out in films and novels. It comes out of our pores, out of our own hearts and our imaginations. It's everywhere. I can think back in my own life to a time, and I'm not boasting. This is not a boast at all. Okay, I say this with much shame and sorrow. But I can remember a time in my life when it was so so hard, so hard for people to come by pornography. So difficult. You had to know the right kids or actually the wrong kids who had the older brothers or the, uh, the dad who had a stash. It was so hard to come by that. I can remember those days, but those days are long gone because now something like pornography is so easy to come by that it's almost mainstream. Anyone with a smartphone and an internet connection can find anything they desire, imagine, or want. It's there. It's all out there. This is the world we're living in. This is the world our children are growing up in. This is the world we're trying to maintain our marriages in. It's a world that is filled with lust. And this lust comes out in the form of sexual immorality. It comes out in the form of impurity, in the form of covetousness. Paul says these things shouldn't even be named among the people of God and Sadly and truly, these things are named among us. They're named among all the congregations of God's people that we know about. Anywhere you find human beings, or anywhere, you find, uh, anywhere you find men and women, you're going to find these kinds of things trying to creep into the body of Christ. When Paul talks about sexual immorality here, I want to be very clear what he is getting at. He's getting at any form of sexual immorality. Any form of it. All forms of adultery, fornication. Those are the the ones that people think of, the big ones. And then you have pornography. But he's also talking about the different kinds of expressions of sexuality. And we see in our world a wide range of expressions of sexuality. Not just heterosexuality, which comes with its own varieties of perversions and abuses. But we also see homosexuality, which comes with its varieties of perversions and abuses as well. Recently, I attended a lecture by a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith, who's written a great book called Desiring the Kingdom. 
And one of the things we discussed in our roundtable was this very issue of how sex and lust has affected all of us. And he made the comment, and I'm paraphrasing the comment, but he said, the most heterosexual man among you is a man whose sexuality is disordered because of sin. In other words, we've all been affected by this. The person who thinks they are the most straight are still crooked, still twisted. The person who thinks they have it all together is still someone who deep down inside is broken and damaged by sin. And that affects their sexuality. Paul is talking about these kinds of things, sexual immorality, impurity, Impurity would capture things like sexual fantasy and erotica. And those things come out in all kinds of places these days. Comes out in a range of what we call entertainments. Entertainment becomes the catch-all for things that we think we can get away with. That we're free to do. We don't want to consider the ethical consequences. And then you have covetousness mentioned here. Covetousness is something that we typically try to tie to money. A covetous person, we think, is someone who is greedy for gain. They just want more and more money. And, and that's true. There are people who are covetous in that way. But there are other ways to be covetous. Some people are covetous in the way they eat. They overeat and they indulge themselves because they just can't get enough. That's a kind of covetousness. But it also comes out in this context to, uh, to, to matters of sexuality. And I can back that up by pointing you to the law of God. If you listen carefully to what the law of God says, when it when it talks about covetousness, it says this, you shall not covet. And that's usually where people stop reading. You shall not covet. But if you read carefully, you see that what Paul is doing in Ephesians five is simply echoing and explaining to us this commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Paul is not taking the law of God and saying that all of those forms of covetousness and all of the objects of a person's covetous heart have to do with their sexuality. That's not where he's going. He's simply saying that the commandment teaches us not to over-desire things, not to crave and lust for things that do not lawfully pertain to us or belong to us. Covetousness is a kind of theft in the heart where you want what someone else has so that they won't have it anymore and you can have it for yourself. So this is the kind of stuff Paul is getting at. On the one hand, in dealing with lust, he's talking about lust as it manifests itself in our flesh, in our bodies, in our hearts, and in our minds. But then he shifts gears and he adds to it that lust comes out in other ways. It comes out in the form of language and speech that we use. He adds that lust... In the form of language and speech includes things like filthiness, foolish talk and crude joking, which he says are out of place. They're out of order. They don't belong among God's people. And it doesn't take a lot of time and effort to dig into these Greek words and find out that what Paul means by filthiness is double entendre, innuendo, perverse language, sexually uh, suggestive speech. 
Foolish talk has to do with uh, sarcasm and cynicism and the kind that where people don't know how to tap the brakes. There's a time and place for some of that when you're joking with your friends. Okay, you can be silly with your friends. But you want to know when to say when, right? You want to put restraint on it. And then crude joking, crude joking in the Greek usage here has to do with what was usually regarded as crude joking about sexual and bodily functions. These, these are the, all of these things are standard fare on our favorite sitcoms and movies, aren't they? And it shows the level to which we have grown to tolerate things that God, by the Holy Spirit in His Word, says the people of God should not tolerate these things. There's no place for this in the household of God. So, in what probably feels to many of you like the longest sermon ever, because these are very uncomfortable truths to deal with, uh, we've got to think about the consequences of these things, don't we? Okay, And what I'm about to say is not intended to uh, come across to you as, um, as a guilt trip or as fear-mongering. Okay? I'm simply trying to echo for us what our Father says to us by the Holy Spirit in His Word. Notice that as you're reading the text, the consequences are these. What happens to people who persist in lust? What happens to people who won't give it up or fight against it? People who just keep giving themselves to it over and over again. Those who walk in lust should not expect to receive any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Instead of grace, there will be wrath for the sons of disobedience. And here, disobedience describes a person who is indifferent concerning God and His Word and obstinate about his or her own sin. So it's important when the Father gives us rules for His household to also tell us the consequences of our actions. We do this with our own children, right? When you're raising your children, you say, do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to do A, B, C. Okay? Something like that. It doesn't mean you love the children any less. It doesn't mean that uh, you don't care about them anymore. It simply means that you're laying out for them the the long-term consequence of an action. If you do these things and you keep doing these things, you're going to end up in this very bad place and it's a place that I don't want you to be and it's a place that you don't need to be. This is what God is doing here. This is how He is unpacking for us this great truth. Now, I would be a terrible pastor if I ended the sermon right there. And the reason I would be a terrible pastor if I ended the sermon right there is because up to this point, I haven't told you much of the gospel, have I? It's easy to look at people and know that these are things we all struggle with. These are things our children are going to struggle with if they haven't already. It's easy to curse the darkness. Much more difficult to light a lamp, but we need to light a lamp. And part of lighting the lamp is reminding you of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that some of you struggle with these very things that we've talked about. 
You've experienced them uh, worse than than what I've even mentioned here has happened to you and the people you care about. I know that some of you have been abused sexually. I know that loved ones you have have been mistreated in that way. I know that the disordered love, the disordered lust, the disordered sexuality of others has had an effect on you. I know that some of you have uh, have suffered terrible, terrible experiences with these things. But what I want you to know is this. What I want you to know is that whatever you've experienced in your life, whatever you've done, whatever's happened to you, whatever you've caused or whatever's provoked, been provoked in your life, there is good news for you. Those things are not good news. Those are, that's bad news, terrible news. And we don't want, not want to make light of it at all, but there is good news for you. And the good news is found in a portion of the text that we read at the very beginning But I want to remind you of now. We've talked a lot about lust this evening. But the thing we haven't talked about yet is love and what real love is. And what we know about real love comes to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This isn't about you cultivating a better habit of love. Not yet anyway. That will come later. But the thing that I want you to know is that you, as a son or daughter in the family of God, with all of the mess and all of the the shame and the guilt that you might carry with you because of things you've experienced, I want you to know that lust is not the thing that defines you. Lust is not the thing that defines you, not in this family. The thing that defines you in this family is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we know that because when we are called by God to be imitators of God the Father as beloved children, we're called beloved children because God loves us and we're identifying with Jesus and Jesus is called the beloved Son of God. So we're being identified with love, not with lust. And God backs up that claim to love by showing us his love in Jesus. We're called to walk in love, not in lust. And here's how it says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Your identity is in the love of God in Jesus Christ. You might have done terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things last night, this morning, this past week. And you really and truly did those things or they happened to you. You don't have to live in that any longer. You don't have to wallow in that guilt and shame and fear. You don't have to keep beating yourself up about it. You don't have to carry that weight and that burden any longer. You don't have to make promises to God that you can't keep, that you're going to get better and try harder, and it's going to be different next time. What you need to do is turn to Christ and find your rest and peace in Him. Take the first step to walk in love. You might trip on the second one, but walk in love. Crawl in love if you have to. As Christ loved you 
and gave himself up for you. Think about that. He loved you when you were entrapped, enmeshed in all of your lust and brokenness. He loved you in that moment. He gave himself up for you, knowing full well what you would experience, what you would think, feel, and do, what you would imagine, how you wouldn't care sometimes. He gave himself up for you. And if that's not enough of a description of love, he goes on to say that he was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so we see in Jesus Christ that the Father loves us so much that he delivers up his own son on the cross for us. That Jesus goes to the cross for his adopted siblings. And he offers himself on the cross in sacrifice, in obedience to God's will for all of those siblings who are disobedient to God's will. It's his sacrificial death on the altar of the cross that becomes a sweet savor and fragrant aroma to God. This is what it means to imitate God. Sacrificially giving yourself to others, sacrificially laying down your desire, your will, your ambitions for the sake of others. I love the way Tim Keller breaks this down for us. Very simple terms. Here's the difference between lust and love. Lust says, what can you do for me? And love says, what can I do for you? You see the difference? Lust is so self-centered, egocentric. But love is altruistic. It's about the other. How can I lay down my life for you? How can I sacrifice my desires for you? How can I offer up myself for you? That, that was in the mind of Jesus. And so do you see the beauty of the gospel for your sake? That Christ exchanged his life for your death. He gave his love in exchange for your lust. When you were still orphans, he helped you become a child of God. When you were dirty and filthy and nasty in your life, when you were infested with sins and infected with death, it's in that moment, in that context, that he gives himself up for you. Not waiting on you to clean up your own mess or to make yourself better or to get better habits or to order your life in a different way. No, while you're still broken and shameful and helpless, that's the moment that he comes to your aid and rescue. So because of Christ, you don't have to prove yourself worthy of the love of God the Father. You don't have to earn his favor. Christ has proven himself worthy of the Father's love on your behalf. So I want you to think about these things for just a moment. That God the Father has elected and loved you from eternity past into the present. Secured your adoption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when he brought you into the family, he knew you had a past. He knew you had a mess. He knew you had some baggage. But he brought you in anyway. How else is he going to help you if he leaves you out in the cold? 
So he brings you in and he's the one who cleans you up and gets you right. And it might take a lifetime or more for him to do all of this, but he's committed to the task. And we know he's committed to the task because of what he's done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to highlight for you here one small thing and then I'll wrap up. And that's not preacher speak. I'm really going to wrap up. Did you notice in Ephesians 5 that in contrast to all of the descriptions of lust, sexual immorality, covetousness, filthiness, and all of those things, the one thing that we are called to do in contrast to all of those things is to give thanks. Did you see it? In verse 4, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And the word for thanksgiving there is the word for Eucharist. Let there be Eucharist. It's possible that after hearing a sermon like this or reading a text like this, you might find yourself thinking, man, I don't belong here. I'm too dirty. I'm too broken. I'm too filthy. I don't belong here. They're going to invite me to the table in a minute. I think I'm just going to stay in my room and wait until dinner's over. But that's not how it works in the family of God. In the family of God, he brings us to this table. And this is where we have table talk. This is where the Father through the Eucharist tells us about the grace of God for us, about the love of Christ in us, about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit for us. It's here at this table that we're reminded once again that the Father is for us. Jesus is with us. The Spirit is on our side and God is relentless in his pursuit of us. So don't you dare keep yourself away from this table. Don't you dare keep yourself away from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need this grace to feed your soul, to give you strength for the battles you're going to have tonight and tomorrow and the day after. You need to be reminded once again that the body and the blood of Jesus Christ are for you. So come eat and drink and be merry as God's grace allows. Let us pray together.